Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 34. Verses 16 to 18. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Burkett notes, The next duty to which our Savior instructs his disciples in is that of religious fasting, which is a devoting of the whole man, soul, and body to a solemn and extraordinary attendance upon God in a particular time set apart for that purpose, in order to the deprecating of his displeasure and for the supplicating of his favor, accompanied with an abstinence from bodily food and sensual delight and from all secular affairs and worldly business. Now our Savior's direction as to the duty of this fasting is double. One, he cautions us to be aware of an abuse in fasting. Be not as the hypocrites are of a sad countenance. That is, do not affect a sullen sadness, ghastliness, and unpleasantness of countenance. Like the hypocritical Pharisees, who vitiate and discolor their faces and mar and abolish their native complexion. Hypocrisy can paint the face black and sable, as well as pride with red and white. Two, he counsels us to take the right way in fasting, to anoint the head and wash the face, that is, to look as at other times, using our ordinary garb and attire, and not to affect anything that may make us look like mourners when really we are not so. Where we may note that although hypocrites, by their dejected countenances and mortified habits, do seek to gain an extraordinary reputation for piety and devotion, yet the sincere Christian is to be abundantly satisfied with God's approbation of his services and with the silent applause of his own conscience. Verses 19 through 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, something implied, namely, that every man has his treasure, and whatever so or wherever so that treasure is, it is attractive, and draws the heart of a man unto it. For every man's treasure is his chief good. Two, something permitted, namely, the getting, possessing, and enjoying of earthly treasure as an instrument enabling us to do much good. Three, something prohibited, and that is, the treasuring up of worldly wealth as our chief treasure. Lay not up treasures on earth. That is, take heed of an inordinate affection to, or an excessive pursuit after, of a vain confidence and trust in any earthly comfort as your chief treasure. For here is something commanded, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasure up those habits of grace which will bring you to an inheritance in glory. Be fruitful in good works, laying up in store for yourselves a good foundation against the time to come that ye may hold of eternal life. Observe 5. The Reasons Assigned 1. Why we should not lay up our treasure on earth, 
because all earthly treasures are of a perishable and uncertain nature. They are subject to moth and rust, to robbery and theft. The perishing nature of earthly things ought to be improved by us as an argument to sit loose in our affections towards them. 2. The reasons assigned why we should lay up our treasure in heaven is this, because heavenly treasures are subject to no such accidents and casualties as earthly treasures are, but are durable and lasting. The things that are not seen are eternal. The treasures of heaven are inviolable, incorruptible, and everlasting. Now we may know whether we have chosen these things for our treasure by our high estimation of the worth of them, by our sensible apprehension of the want of them, by the torrent and tendency of our affections towards them, and by our laborious diligence and endeavors in the pursuit of them. Where the treasure is, there will be the heart also. Verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thine whole body shall be full of light. But if thy eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Burkett notes, In the foregoing verses, our Savior acquainted us what in our affections and judgments we should esteem as our chief treasure. Now this judgment, concerning our chief treasure, is by the Savior here compared to the eye. As the eye is the candle of the body that enlightens and directs it, so our understanding and judgment of the excellency of heaven and the things above will draw our affection towards them and quicken our endeavors after them. Note thence that such as our judgment is concerning happiness, such will our desires and endeavors be for the attainment of that happiness. Our affections are guided by our apprehensions. Where the esteem is high, endeavors will be strong. Verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Burkett notes. Observe here a twofold master spoken of, God and the world. God is our master by creation, preservation, and redemption. He has appointed us our work and secured our wages. The world is our master by intrusion, usurpation, and a general estimation, too many esteeming it as their chief good and delighting in it as their chief joy. Observe, too, that no man can serve these two masters who are of contrary interests and issue out contrary commands. When two masters are subordinate and their commands subservient to each other, the difficulty of serving both is not great. But where commands interfere and interests clash, it's impossible. No man can serve God and the world, but he may serve God with the world. No man can seek God and mammon both as his chief good and ultimate end, because no man can divide his heart betwixt God and the world. Learn that to love the world as our chief good and to serve the world as our chief and sovereign commander cannot stand with the love and service which we bear and owe to God. The world's slaves, while such, can be none of God's freemen. Verses 25 and 26. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiments? Behold the fowls of the air, For they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. 
Are you not much better than they? Burkett notes. The next sin which our Savior cautions his disciples against is immoderate care for the things of this life, such as solicitous and vexatious care for food and rarements, as is accompanied with diffidence and distrust of God's fatherly providence over us and provision for us. And the arguments which our Savior uses to dissuade from this sin are many and cogent, laid down in the following verses. Learn here, one, that Almighty God will provide for every servant of His food and raiment and a competency of the comforts and conveniences of life. Learn, too, that want of faith in God's promise and distrust of His fatherly care is a God-provoking and wrath-procuring sin. Learn, three, that notwithstanding God's promising to supply our wants, we do not only may but must use such providential and provident means as in our powers, in order to the supply of our wants. Dr. Hammond's Practical Catechism, verses 27 through 32. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit into his stature? And why take ye thought of raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which is today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith! Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Burkett Notes Four arguments are used by our Savior to dissuade us from the sin of anxious care. Tis needless, tis fruitless, tis heathenish, tis brutish. 1. Tis needless. Your Heavenly Father knoweth ye have need of these things, and will certainly provide for you. And what need you take care, and God too? 2. Tis fruitless. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? That is, by all our solicitous care, we can add nothing either to the length or comfort of our lives. 3. Tis heathenish. After all, these things the Gentiles do. 3. Tis brutish. Nay, worse than brutish. The fowl of the air and the beasts of the field are fed by God. Much more shall his children. Has God a breakfast for every little bird that comes chirping out of its nest, and for every beast in the wilderness that comes leaping out of his den? And will he not much more provide for you, O ye of little faith? Surely he that feeds the ravens when they cry will not starve his children when they pray. Naturalists observe of the raven that she exposes her young ones as soon as they're hatched, leaves them meatless and featherless to shift and struggle with hunger as soon as they come into the world. And whether by the dew from heaven or flies and worms, God feedeth them. And when they gape and cry, they are provided for from whence our Savior infers that man being much better, that is, a more considerable creature than the fowls, the providence of God will provide for him, though no solicitude and anxious thoughtfulness of his contributions thereunto. Verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Burkett notes. That is, let your first and chief care be to promote the kingdom of grace in this world 
and to secure the kingdom of glory in the next. And in order unto both, seek after a universal holiness and righteousness, both of heart and life, and then fear not the want of these outward comforts. They shall be added in measure, though not in excess, to satisfy, though not to satiate, for health, though not for surfeit. Observe 1. The Christians must here on earth set themselves to seek heaven, or the kingdom of God. 2. That God's kingdom cannot be sought without God's righteousness. Holiness is the only way to happiness. 3. That heaven, or the kingdom of God, must be sought in the first place, with our chief care and principal endeavor. 4. That heaven being once secured by us, all earthly things should be superadded by God, as he sees needful and convenient for us. Verse 34. Take, therefore, no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Perquet notes. Here our Savior reinforces his dehortation from solicitous care for worldly things, assuring us that every day will bring with it a sufficient burden of trouble, and therefore we ought not torment ourselves by antedating our own sorrows and foretelling what may or may not come to pass. Learn that it is painful, sinful, unprofitable evil to perplex ourselves with distrustful and distracting fears of what may come upon us. Every day has its own duty and difficulty, and though suffering must be expected and prepared for, yet we must not torment ourselves today with fears of what may be tomorrow. But every day cast our burden of care upon that God who daily careth for us. (laughs) 